Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Connor Stoyer, a medical oncologist at the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, along with his colleagues, Dr. Frank Schneider, Director of the Cancer Tissue and Pathology Shared Resource, and Elise Hitron, a Phase I Clinical Trials Nurse Practitioner. Our multidisciplinary panel will discuss the latest management strategies for patients with EGFR mutation-positive non-small cell lung cancer, including emerging therapies for overcoming diverse mechanisms of resistance to current standard of care EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Taking Aim at HER3 in Lung Cancers Resistant to EGFR Inhibitors. For more information on our panel, along with a link to the complete program, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. Welcome, everybody. My name is Connor Stoyer. I'm a medical oncologist uh, specializing in thoracic tumors at the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University. I'm happy to be joining everyone and all the audience that's listening in um, just to kind of talk about non-small cell lung cancer with a focus on EGFR and treatments for EGFR resistant. I'm fortunate today to be joined by two of my colleagues who I've worked very closely with over the last couple of years, and we'll start off just by having them introduce themselves. Uh, Thank you. My name is Frank Schneider. I'm a pulmonary pathologist uh, also at Emory University. My job is to diagnose lung cancers on biopsies and resections and make sure they get the appropriate ancillary testing done. Thank you very much. And Elise? Hi, thank you. My name is Elise Hitron, and I'm a nurse practitioner. I currently work in our phase one clinical trial unit. So all of our patients enrolled on phase one, sometimes phase two clinical trials. We have a dedicated outpatient infusion center where we see them. Definitely seen a lot of lung cancer patients. Well, great. And I'm glad to have you both on this podcast as, you know, treating, well, all oncology, but especially lung cancer uh, is definitely a team effort. So happy to have you guys here. So to start off, I just want to talk about lung cancer in general. So I'm uh, not going to go over every detail about how we take care of these patients, but uh, to emphasize a few points, you know, we get a new lung cancer. The paradigm for how we treat these patients is very different than it was 20 years ago. Back then, it was just, is a small cell or is it a non-small cell? Then we learned histology is important. And now the pie is being broken down further and further in subtypes of lung cancer, largely driven by the discovery of driver mutations, which hold therapeutic benefit. So with that being said, the current paradigm for non-small cell lung cancer, especially non-squamous, is that we need genomic testing in order to best choose the right treatment option for the right patient. So kind of before delving into that, you know, since we do have an acclaimed uh, pathologist with us today, I was hoping, Frank, you could kind of talk a little about an interventional radiologist or interventional pulmonologist, for instance, sends you tissue from a suspicious mass in the lungs. What is your process from getting the tissue, getting a diagnosis, and then what you look for if we want genomic sequencing? That's an excellent question, Connor. Thank you. There are multiple perspectives uh, you can uh, view this from. First of all, if we get a lung biopsy of a lung mass and we diagnose lung cancer, it is 
often not clear to the pathologist what the purpose of the biopsy was. And what I mean by that is we don't know if this is a biopsy to diagnose an unknown lung mass that could also just be a necrotizing granuloma, for example, or whether it is a patient with very high pretest probability of lung cancer and the biopsy is done specifically to diagnose it so the oncologist can treat the patient because we can handle those a little differently and we can use fewer stains to diagnose those and save and preserve more tissue for molecular testing. Or if it is done in a patient with known lung cancer uh, whose uh, diagnosis is already established and the biopsy is done solely to obtain tissue for molecular testing. So what that implies is that we need good communication with whoever sent us biopsies on why we had that biopsy and why it was taken. Obviously, many pathologists have access to the electronic records. Uh, Connor, if we work together, I read all your notes before I do anything with the biopsy I get from you. But that's not true in all settings. So I would uh, make the listeners aware who are not working in such well-integrated system as a university or ours uh, specifically, to make sure that the pathologist knows what they actually want them to do. So all testing is essentially done on the tissue that gets embedded into paraffin. So it ends up in a paraffin embedded block and we can keep those for years and decades and still test those. Most of the biopsies, especially in higher stage tumors, right, are small biopsies. Now there's two perspectives again. What can the pathologist do to make testing successful on those? Uh, if we get core biopsies, we could split those into two paraffin blocks so that we can use one for the diagnostic portion and one could be used to send out to a reference lab, for example, or that could be used for molecular testing. If we uh, try to diagnose a cancer, uh, we only use minimal, like very few additional immunohistochemical stains to actually diagnose it so that we can preserve and save a lot of the tissue in the paraffin block for molecular testing. You have to see what works in your, uh, in your institution. There are differences in yield uh, from core biopsies, from uh, FNAs, uh, from transponcular biopsies. You have to see how do I get the most bang for my buck if I biopsy, if I decide to biopsy a patient. And then there's the, the oncologist perspective, right? What I, what I said, you want to inform the pathologist of what you're looking for. The most important is probably knowing for the pathologist whether the patient already has another primary tumor. We often get lung masses in patients with metastatic breast cancer, with metastatic colon cancer. You know, morphologically, there can be overlap with lung cancer. And the only way we can tease that out to be primary lung cancer is with immunostains. Sometimes that works with few stains, that's great. Sometimes it doesn't. So what you want to do is tell your pathologist, you know, this is the patient who has no other cancer, as far as I know. Uh, I think this is lung cancer. And that makes it much easier for you. And then you have to uh, communicate what the, what the goal is of the biopsy. If it's a biopsy uh, to defer someone to surgery uh, who's a surgical candidate, or if it's someone who is late stage or higher stage cancer who needs uh, medical oncology treatment and the biopsy is done solely for molecular testing, that also helps us steer the tissue into the right direction. So thanks a lot, Frank. That was a great kind of overall summary of what it's like from your side of things when, when we're diagnosing a patient. Um, and what, you know, some of the things you touched on, which are crucial for, for us from a medical oncology standpoint is, like I said, there are now something like eight FDA-approved driver mutations with targeted therapies. So now for every patient, we send off next-generation testing, uh, most oftenly in a tissue. We can also send it off from blood, CTDNA. 
So you definitely want to be in communication with the interventionalists who are doing the biopsies to make sure you get enough tissue and with the pathologists to make sure that they, when possible, preserve enough tissue to get that testing off. We here use a, a reference laboratory to do it. Some places do in-house, but it's just important to get all this biomarker testing. But that can take a while. And one thing, you know, I just want to touch on a little bit is maybe have Elise weigh in since she, she's often on the front line discussing with patients is they're newly diagnosed. What do you see is their openness to hear? Are they often overwhelmed? Do they, do you think they understand when we're saying, well, we have to wait for treatment for two to four weeks to get these results back? And kind of the things that are important from a patient side of things, a new diagnosis, knowing that we need this information. Thank you. Often the patients I see now are in the metastatic setting. So that could mean that they're newly diagnosed metastatic. And so that means that our focus is going to be on systemic therapy. But as was being discussed, getting pathology is hugely important. And so I usually try and break it down for patients in two ways. We need histology. So we need to kind of understand the basic cell type in in a non-small cell lung cancer patient. This is still important. And then the next step is biomarker testing. I had a colleague refer to this as alphabet soup, and I think that's kind of helpful for patients too, to understand that the point of it is that we have specific therapies, specific medications that target their type of cancer. So sort of frame it as an individualized kind of therapy, and that'll help us get the most success. And so I think once they sort of understand that, that there's, you know, not all lung cancer is the same, and that our drugs at this point to treat it target the results from this molecular biotesting, um, I think that makes it a little bit more digestible and sort of makes that waiting period a little bit more tolerable. Thanks, Elise. Uh, wholeheartedly agree. And I will say, you know, something that wasn't really part of my discussion with patients when I was training, but is now when I'm seeing patients as an attending physician, is just kind of spending time going over uh, what genomic testing is and why we want to wait for those results of patients and make him understand how important that is for their care. Can I add something, Connor? Sure. I thought it was interesting when Elise mentioned the metastatic setting, and sometimes that metastatic setting is in the bone, right? just want to point out that bone biopsies for pathologists are kind of tricky. And the reason is that once you process it in the lab and you put it into that paraffin, it's, you can't cut it like a normal slide because it's bone. So what you need to do is sort of ex extract the calcium salts a little bit and make that softer. So we throw it in acid and that interferes with some of the assays we are doing. So bone biopsies are probably the least optimal for uh, molecular testing. We experience many problems. It's essentially impossible to get proper uh, fluorescence in situ testing, for example, for uh, out-translocations or uh, MET amplifications on those tissues. Great point, Frank. Thanks. And I've learned that mostly because we <laughs> I've worked closely with my uh, pathologist for the last couple of years. So that just kind of highlights the importance of kind of a team effort to these patients so everyone can learn from each other about the best way to move forward with them. Yeah. And the pra my practical advice for practitioners is, or radiologists is that don't just take a biopsy, maybe also do an aspirate at the end, because aspirates with a few bone spicules are often easier to process without decalcification. If they have tumor in them, that would be a suitable specimen. That's a great point. And I, I typically request for non-bone biopsies just for this reason. So moving forward, you know, I mentioned that when we do get genomic testing back and the field is rapidly moving forward, there are multiple driver mutations which we have targeted therapy for over chemotherapy, over immunotherapy. So this data is important. 
One I want to focus on today is kind of the grandfather of these in the lung cancer space, and that's EGFR, epidermal growth factor receptor. You could go on for hours about the clinical development of EGFR inhibitors over the last you know, 10, 15 years or so. But just to kind of summarize, this mutation was found in early to mid-2000, the first decade. And the first generation EGFR TKIs were developed. They were uh, erlotinib and and shown to be beneficial for patients with a sensitizing EGFR mutation over that of chemotherapy, also while better tolerated. Um, now, the field has moved forward, and the third generation osimertinib was initially developed to combat a specific resistance mutation called T790M. T790M occurred in about 50% of patients treated with the first or second generation EGFR inhibitors and was very effective. Long story short, osimertinib, based on clinical trials, moved to the first-line space, at least in the United States, is now the um, standard of care first-line targeted therapy for patients with EGFR mutations. Speaking of osimertinib, Lisa, have you seen uh, patients on osimertinib? I mean, it's generally well-tolerated. Um, and I think we've had some clinical trials that you've had patients on. I, I have seen some patients uh, on osimertinib, uh, especially in the, in the phase one setting. It's usually with a combination drug. But I agree. I think it is pretty well tolerated considering sort of the breadth of other TKIs. Some, some are not as much, but osimertinib is one that people generally do well with. I think in terms of adverse effect profile, most commonly, I think we can see you know, initially a, a platelet decrease, sometimes some GI side effects and some, you know, blood count changes, neutropenia and anemia. A lot of this we can correct either with dose reduction or just kind of time, letting letting someone get used to it. And then some of the other things are sort of skin changes, uh, dry skin, which again is very treatable, very manageable. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Osmeritib has been something of a wonder drug for my patients and highly effective, highly tolerated. We've moved so far forward that now we need to figure out these patients progressing. Why do they progress on osimertinib? So I mentioned before, there's this one mutation, T-Sinus-9-M, that was very frequent for patients that were on first or second generation EGPTKIs, but osimertinib seems to have a more diverse profile. Frank, why do patients progress on osimertinib? Well, Connor, we run into this problem occasionally, right, that uh, people progress on osimertinib. And, uh, you sort of have to know about the lay of the land in the lung cancer cell at that point. So the, the EGFR receptor that's mutated is a membrane protein, right? And it gets inhibited by the drug. And at some point, that inhibition goes away. The, the people progress. So what can make the cancer cell grow, although the drug's still in the patient, right? So there's, there's various ways this happens. You can either have in additional mutation in EGFR that uh, sort of re reactivates it, there's a, a series of other membrane-bound proteins like MET and uh, HER2, the, the other ERB family uh, receptors, uh, FGFR, you know, the, the ALK-RET, ROS. They all are different receptors from EGFR, but they all affect intracellular downstream molecules that can make those cells proliferate. So you can have changes, amplifications, oncogenic fusions, uh, constituent activations in any of those molecules, but you can also have changes in any of the downstream pathway. Uh, PIX3CA mutations come to, come to mind, uh, RAS mutations or RAS, RAS gain, uh, ERG amplification. Uh, there's, there's a series of, of effects that can happen 
outside of the actual EGFR receptor. So, and that always reminds me of what I was taught in medical school, and that is uh, that more mistakes are done by not looking than by not knowing. So the key to solving this puzzle, I think, is the most comprehensive genomic profiling you can get. Because if you don't look for it, you won't find it. And I think there's an opportunity for every patient. If you do run into that progression on osmertinib and you do do the testing, you might find something else you can attack. Yeah, I uh, completely agree. And I think uh, biopsying after osmertinib progression is becoming more and more the standard of care. And at some point in the future will be the standard of care. Resistance to osimertinib is kind of a diverse field. And the issue remains that EGFR progression is not a unilateral thing. From a clinical standpoint, if you have like a single lesion progressing and everything else is controlled, I'll often do some sort of local therapy and continue them on the osimertinib. You think that maybe there's just that one clone that starts to progress and everything else is controlled. But if you see new, symptomatic, more widespread disease, you know you need to switch therapies. The current standard of care for patients that progress on osimertinib therapy is chemotherapy plus minus immunotherapy with the use of immunotherapy in this setting somewhat controversial at this time, but definitely at least platinum-based chemotherapy. However, whether it's after chemotherapy use or instead of chemotherapy, you know, different mechanism of action, different treatment modalities are certainly needed to improve outcomes for this patient population. And the issue as highlighted is that it's not one definable mutation that we can attack. I think to reach the most amount of patients, it's good to explore treatment options that work across resistance mutations. And what that leads to is a new drug with new data that's recently been presented and published which is having some exciting results for uh, patients. The drug is called patrutumab deruxtecan. So what this is, is an AD, what we call an ADC or an antibody drug conjugate. And what it has is an antibody that, you know, in this case, the target is HER3, um, which I'll frame talk about in a second, but basically it targets HER3, then has a linker, which connects the quote-unquote payload to the antibody, uh, and then has a cytotoxic agent attached. Um, in this case, it's deruxtecan, and it's eight to one ratio between the targeting antibody and the payload. And that's what patrutumab deruxtecan is. And um, there has been some early work showing some early promising signs of efficacy. Um, before we kind of get into the results of how this drug did in clinical trials, HER3 is not a everyday word for even medical oncologists. So I was hoping Frank could talk about like, what's HER3? How do we stain for it? Because it sounds like HER2, which everyone's pretty familiar with, you know, especially in the breast world, but even in the lung world now. So how does HER3 different or what, what is HER3, Frank? HER3 is another member of the herb family of uh, membrane-bound protein that, uh, you know, affect intracellular uh, uh, downstream effectors uh, within the cell that make cells proliferate. It, it's Kind of interesting that we are working our way up in the uh, ERP family, right? Because EGFR is uh, ERP1 and uh, HER2 from breast cancer is ERP2. So now we are at ERP3, which is the HER3 receptor. Most people, if not everyone, will be familiar with HER2 testing. And that's really a, a good comparison. HER2 has a drug that is given if HER2 is expressed. So now the uh, hypothesis here, I suppose, is 
there is a drug uh, that has an effect if HER3 is, is expressed. How do you test for HER3? Well, it's like you test for any other protein expression in the clinical laboratory. You get an antibody, uh, the most preferred antibodies are monoclonal antibodies. You uh, uh, validate it on uh, tumors and then you put it into clinical practice. And if you have a laboratory that's accredited, for example, through the uh, College of American Pathologist, you can rest assured that the laboratories know how to do this because they are experts at developing these uh, laboratory developed tests and they, they do it essentially on a on a daily basis all over the country now her 3 won't be a current stain on most laboratories menu but they are relatively easy to implement uh, you have to pick the antibody you have to pick the antibody clone and you have to pick the platform you want to run it on which is usually defined what by what you have anyway and then you have to come up with a scoring method, which is very well established and uh, has been uh, revised uh, several times in the HER2 breast cancer world. Uh, so that would have to happen in the HER3 world too, since we're at the beginning of this, if such expression profile is even needed in the beginning for approval. And then there's all kinds of pre-analytical variables that uh, play into it. But since uh, in pretty much every pathology lab in the country, tissue is processed in a very standardized fashion, you can pretty much rest assured that if we put a lung cancer into a paraffin block at any institution here in Georgia and we stain it in our lab, we probably get a reliable result. Thanks, Frank. And I think it's important to mention that HER3 makes for a good target in non-small cell lung cancer just because it is very highly expressed, especially in EGFR mutated lung cancers. Um, that being said, HER3 is a little different than EGFR and that HER3 isn't driving proliferation of the cancer cell and direct targeting without a payload, just blocking HER3 doesn't seem to have much effect on inhibition. So these ADCs make sense because it's a good target to get the cytotoxic to your cell and then deliver the actual cytotoxic, which is beyond HER3 and kills a cell and uh, the linker gets cleaved and actually kills cells around it as well, uh, what's called the bystander effect. So moving on to the actual clinical trial, um, we do have phase one results and top end summary of, of this ADC in non-small cell lung cancer patients. Uh, most of the patients on the study were EGFR mutated um, with non-small cell lung adenocarcinoma, obviously, and they all had failed EGFR TKIs, most commonly being osimertinib, and most of the time platinum-based chemotherapy as well. Taken as a whole, the response rate was 39% with a median progression-free survival of 8.2 months, which is impressive for a heavily putreated population. What's good is that this, this response was seen regardless of uh, the EGFR resistance mechanism and across the HER3 expression levels. There may be a hint that the higher the HER3, the more effective the drug, but basically it was shown kind of irregardless of HER3 expression as well as the presence of CNS metastasis did not seem to affect efficacy. In terms of the drug's tolerability, uh, we treated several patients in the clinical trial they had available for petrodumab derox tecan here at Emory, and Elise was kind of on the front lines for that, so I thought it would be good for her if she can comment on what she saw from the toxicity level and how patients did on the study. Yeah, we, I was fortunate enough to be uh, working with a lot of these patients uh, in, in the initial phase one study. 
So as we've mentioned, eligibility for this, patients had to have failed an EGFR, and also just circumstance-wise, all these patients who are EGFR mutated had seen an EGFR-targeted therapy because that's standard of care. They also initially had to have had at least one cycle of a platinum-based therapy or at least seen platinum-based therapy. So patients are coming in having been pre-treated um, and having had some chemo. And so just to kind of back up and, and from the patient perspective, none of them had heard of or seen an antibody drug conjugate. So we would start with a little bit of education about what that means, how it's different from any therapy they've seen. We had a few different doses that we would give uh, in this phase one setting, uh, depending on the cohort or dose enrollment. But in terms of tolerability, most patients did quite well. Initially, we were restricted on what we could use for antiemetics for nausea. Partially, this is because we were still learning a little bit about the toxicity profile from the drug, and likely we were avoiding things like Zofran because of potential for QTC prolongation. Um, so I think that was probably the more challenging for, for the few patients that did have nausea, which was fairly common initially. We had to sort of avoid that category. But once we were able to open up the antiemetic toolbox, we were able to quickly manage this side effect. So nausea, I think, was pretty common. And I found this is sort of anecdotally, people either had it or didn't. It usually wasn't a mild in-between. So pre-medication could help a lot, as well as just, you know, home antiemetics as needed. Um, we also saw some thrombocytopenia or neutropenia. Often in the thrombocytopenia, if we, when we were checking labs really early on after initiating therapy, we would see it within a week or two weeks. And often it would resolve if we just sort of watched it. I can't recall off the top of my head re requiring a dose reduction because of that platelet drop. Um, so most of the time, it, people recovered and, and they tolerated the drug thereafter. And then in terms of neutropenia, we had options to treat with growth factors. But a lot of our patients, you know, depending on how much platinum therapy they had, we would make that determination initially. But uh, again, that's, that was pretty uncommon. But most of the time, people really do tolerate this drug. Um, and it was exciting to see people who are heavily pretreated have a nice response and be able to spend some time on it. Thanks, Elise. That was great from your experience and highlights what I saw as well. And then from the, just the overarching published trial results, they kind of fall in line with what you mentioned with kind of mostly what you'd expect from kind of chemotherapy or cytotoxic agent toxicities, hematological, GI, fatigue. The thrombocytopenia is a bit unique where it can be pretty profound, but seems to be self-limiting and early on in treatment. Um, I think the one thing to highlight is that from other studies with antibody drug conjugate, especially uh, with patrimidurex TCAN, you do have to be on the lookout for interstitial lung disease, which is always the high concern for our lung cancer patients just because they've had so much, you know, radiation and other things to their lung. We mentioned HER3 testing, you know, given that these responses were seen across HER3 values, we'll see where the future trials go, but uh, I would be surprised if HER3 testing became mandatory to give the drug, but we'll see. So I think our options are improving uh, for this patient population. I mean, osimertinib is fantastic for EGFR-mutated patients. And then when they progress, I think that's where a lot of our research is, cur is currently. I think petrodumadurexican is a promising agent, and I eagerly await further study in the larger populations, but promising early results. Um, and just other mechanisms to really improve the outcomes for these patients. That'll conclude our uh, podcast for today about the GFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer. And I really want to thank 
Frank Schneider here and Elise Petron for uh, joining me today and providing their valuable input and thank the audience for, for joining us. Thank you very much to our multidisciplinary panel of experts and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, taking aim at HER3 and lung cancers resistant to EGFR inhibitors on the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.